Let's open up our Bibles to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, we're going to look at the first 20 verses this morning. As you turn to Mark 5, would you stand with me and let's pray and ask that God would minister to us as we study his word this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. As you set free this man who was demon-possessed, that the community had no answers for. We know that you have the power to set us free as well. That you came to heal the brokenhearted, to set the captives free. And in a good way, we ask that this would not just be a normal service. That it wouldn't be a normal Sunday morning where we worship and hear your word, but that we would experience you, Christ. We know your promise that you're with us when we gather. You're in our hearts, you walk the aisles, you're present in this room. You're present to save, you're present to bring deliverance. We also know there's a real enemy, so would you bind Satan? Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. This morning we're going to look at Christ's power to be able to set free. He sets free the demoniac, a man who is possessed with multiple demons. And the prayer is that we would look at God's deliverance in our lives as well. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. They came to the other side of the sea. If you remember from the end of chapter 4, Jesus had taught all day, a huge multitude pressing in upon him, had to teach from a boat. Gets done teaching, turns to his disciples and says, let's cross over. Let's go over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, about a four-mile journey. They encounter a tremendous storm. Jesus sent them into the storm. Christ falls asleep. They wake him up. We're perishing. We're taking on water. What did Christ do? He rebuked the wind and the waves. Now they get to the other side. Why did they get to the other side? Because Jesus promised that they would. Let's cross over to the other side. Most times, most storms, most difficulties in this life will have a lifespan. They're temporary. We will see the other side of it even here on this earth. There are a few difficulties that we won't experience relief from until we go home to to be with the Lord. The country, the region is called the Gadarenes. It's the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Today, this region is called the Golan Heights. Just beyond the eastern shore, we find the border between Israel and Israel. And Syria. Someone's waiting for them in verse 2. And when he'd come out of the boat immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Jesus and the disciples get no break. We really see that in the Gospel of Mark. Can you imagine being in the shoes of the disciples? It's been so difficult already. Just got through the storm. Probably getting on to land, going, oh, land feels so good. I thought that was going to be the end of me. And here comes the crazy. As we're going to read, this guy is out of control at an understatement. Multiple demons living inside of him, and he's coming towards Jesus immediately when they get to the shore. We find this word immediately over and over in the Gospel of Mark. Mark doesn't give us the most detail, but it shows us how quickly things were happening in the ministry of Christ. It's the Twitter feed of the New Testament. So immediately he comes to them, 
He's living in the tombs, a man of an unclean spirit. Awesome application here in verse 2. Usually on the other side of a storm, there's somebody for us to minister to. Haven't you found that? That part of the storm is for us to get to that person. Jesus had this demoniac in mind. That's the reason, the purpose that he wanted to cross over. Storms have a way of changing our physical location. You get really sick, you find yourself in the hospital, you're going to be around people that you'd have had no contact with otherwise. A lot of times there's somebody for you to minister to. I bet some of you have lost your job, and because of that, it resulted in a complete change of location. Maybe you're in Colorado Springs because of that. You found work here, you couldn't find it where you lived before. And you get to Colorado Springs and there's a ministry. There's somebody for you to serve. There's somebody for you to reach out to. I was born and raised in Southern Oregon until I was 16 years old. Then the company that my dad worked for was closing down in Southern Oregon and moving jobs to Salt Lake City, Utah. And that is a tremendous downgrade going from Oregon to Salt Lake City. I think God made a little bit of a mistake when he chose that area over in Israel for the promised land because he really should have chose the northwest. I mean, that really is the promised land. It's beautiful there, right? My dad desperately looked to find work in the northwest, couldn't find any. We were forced to move to Salt Lake City. Change of location. And in the midst of that, it ended up being one of the most important times of my life. Got to know Christ in a greater way, got to know him as my best friend. Got to begin to see God use my life. Some opportunities that I don't think I would have had there in, in Southern Oregon. So if you're going through a storm this morning, take hope. When you get to the other side, there's going to be ministry. And you're being equipped for the ministry in the storm. What do we not find in these 20 verses from the disciples? No fear. There's no fear of the demoniac. Why? Because they've just gone through the storm and seen Jesus have authority over the wind and the waves. They're like, we're with Christ. I think he's got this one. I think this demoniac is no problem for Christ. And as we go through the storms of life, then we come to a ministry opportunity. Instead of going, this is way beyond anything that I can handle. I need to run in fear. We go, I'm with Jesus. He just got me through the storm. He's able now to work in, in the midst of this person's life who's standing in front of me. This man is coming out of the tombs. That's where he lived. In verse 3, who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he'd often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. His home is the tombs. We know from the burial in Israel at this time that they would dig out caves on hills, similar to where Christ was buried, and roll a big stone over the tomb. It'd be the family burial site. For this demoniac to live in the tombs, he's actually living among bones, among skeletons. His whole life is fixed in around death. In this man's life, we see the damage that enemy does, that demons do in someone's life. Do we have a culture where people are isolated, 
fixed upon death and violence. Absolutely, don't we? We have a, a culture that isolates us extremely. You'd think we wouldn't be isolated because we're so connected with Facebook and Twitter and Snapchat, whatever that is. But you can be in a room with a bunch of people, but you're not in a room with them because we're all doing this, looking at our screens, insanely isolated. I'm thinking about becoming a chiropractor because there's got to be a ton of business for it, right? We're all jacked up because we're going throughout our day like this. We're isolated. And in that isolation, what is our culture fixed upon? Death, violence. We're living among the bones. What's the message of our music? Violent acts, our movies, our media. Our media loves to put all these things in front of us. So our culture can relate to to this culture as well. Let's pause for just a moment and consider a question. How does someone become demon-possessed, and can someone be demon-possessed today? First is, believers cannot be demon-possessed. I think we can stand biblically on that truth. There's some Christians that would teach that believers can be demon-possessed, and to me, it doesn't line up with the word, and this is why. Because in 1 John 1, it's really clear, Jesus says that he is light, and he doesn't dwell with darkness. Colossians chapter 1 tells us that when we receive Christ our Savior, Christ lives in us, the hope of glory. So he's the light of the world, and he's living in our hearts. Jesus does not share space with demons. It's not even possible. He's the light of the world. No darkness can can dwell in him. So you don't have to worry as a believer about being demon-possessed. A demon can harass you, oppress you from an external perspective, but a demon can't live inside of you. But for someone who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, they can be demon-possessed. I think there's people today that are demon-possessed. How does it happen? Much similar to the way that you receive Christ as your Savior. People let demons in. You let Christ in. You accept Christ in. You say, Christ, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be control of my life. And people choose that. They get involved in demonic activity, get more interested in it, more interested in it, A lot of times mix it with some drugs, drugs opening up to the demonic world. In the New Testament, we find this English word sorcery. The Greek word is pharmakia, from which we get our English word pharmacy. In the original language, sorcery and drugs were linked together. If you talk to someone who's been heavily involved in drugs, they'll tell you that it opened them up to the demonic realm. Dabbling in drugs, dabbling in demonic activity then ultimately saying, okay, I want these demons to come and live inside of me. As this man is living amongst the the tombs, verse 4 shows us the community had no answers for him. All they could do was try to control him. They couldn't help him. And their solution was, let's just put shackles and chains on him. And he would break them off because he had supernatural power through, through the demons. I think if we're honest, we're starting to experience things in our community that as a community, apart from Christ, we don't have answers for. We can't solve it. We can't fix it. We're putting every physical tool at it and neglecting the spiritual reality. You can't solve a spiritual problem with a physical tool. 
Only Jesus can set this man free. One of the things that we're finding, and I would really ask us as a church to be praying for the teens in our community because we're having a huge problem with teen suicide right here in Colorado Springs. And it's the worst in the state, and it's more than national averages right here in in this community. And there's a lot of physical resources being put towards it, and I think every physical resource should be put towards it. It breaks my heart to think of kids living in this community, in our neighborhoods, in our churches, that feel like life is hopeless and the only option is to take their lives in suicide. But we have to also acknowledge that there's a spiritual problem, isn't there? There's a demonic realm in our community that Satan is attacking. I believe that suicide is the ultimate work of Satan in someone's life. He loves to lie. He loves to steal. He loves to kill. He loves to destroy. He loves to plant those thoughts that your life is not worth it. This doesn't even make the news anymore. But this is what kids are waking up to in our community, getting news from the school to the moms and dads that the junior high and high school is closed for the day because they've had a classmate that's committed suicide on the school grounds. And you probably don't even know unless your kid goes to the school. Imagine what that does to you as a child, as a junior high or high school student. Think about in your life as an adult, how many people have you experienced that had committed suicide and how old were you when you first experienced that? I didn't experience that of classmates in junior high and high school, and you probably didn't either. But the kids growing up in our city are, and they've already experienced it three or four times, and they're a junior in high school. And we go, okay, Lord, we realize that you, Jesus, are the answer. We realize there's a spiritual war that's taking place. We want to be praying for them. We want to be praying that they would be introduced to, to Christ. The community had no answers for what was going on in this, life, in this man's life. In verse 5, And always night and day he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself. So he's isolated, he's in the tombs, fixed in upon death. He frees himself from the shackles and the chains, but he's not free, and he begins to cut himself. Isn't that interesting? Here we are reading an ancient text describing an event that's almost 2,000 years old. And here is a guy where the enemy is influencing his life and he's taking out the pain and the torment through cutting himself. Cutting is a huge issue in our culture today. It's an issue for youth, but it's also an issue for adults. Last summer we were at Waterworld as a family, all six of us, and There was a family in front of us in line, mom and dad, and they had four kids, similar age. Parents seemed about the same age as Amber and I, and you couldn't miss it. You wanted to miss it, but you couldn't miss it. This mom was cutting herself, all down her legs, all down the back of her arms, recent cuts, countless scars, hundreds and hundreds of scars. She's a mom with four kids, and cutting is current in her life. People experience such pain, such brokenness, they don't know what to do. To feel something that they begin to cut. I have no doubt that some of you this morning are currently cutting. 
currently in that, that place. And I want you to hear this. I want you to hear the love of God. I want you to experience the love of God. Jesus died a brutal death upon the cross where he was cut. He was whipped. He was pierced. He went through pain so you don't have to bleed. He bled so you don't have to bleed. And that cutting is not going to comfort your soul, but Jesus is here to comfort your soul. In Isaiah, there's a prophecy about Jesus that he came to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. Julie mentioned it. Jesus is our savior, but he's also our healer. He knows pain. He knows sorrow. He bore it upon himself and he wants to comfort you. He wants to meet you in the midst of of that pain. And that's exactly what Jesus does for this man in verse six. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshiped him. And the demons began to speak. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. So the demon believes in Christ, addresses him by his full title, no relationship, begs him by God. Isn't that cute? So here he is speaking to God and begging him by God that Jesus wouldn't torment him. But the demons are in the business of torment, but they don't want to be tormented. For he said to him, come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. Jesus asked his name so that we would understand that this man's not just possessed by one demon, but a multitude of demons. Legion would be a group of soldiers numbering 6,000 Roman soldiers. Doesn't necessarily mean that he had 6,000 demons, but enough demons to where his name would be called Legion. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Luke chapter 8 verse 31 tells us that they begged that he would not command them to go into the abyss. These demons are really saying, don't put us into judgment. We don't want to be rendered inactive. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding near the mountains. So all the people begged him saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. So please send us into this herd of pigs. Why did Jesus say yes? Two things come to mind. One is that it's going to show very clearly what demons do, because the demons are going to quickly destroy the pigs. But it also gets the attention of the community. As we'll read in the next few verses, the whole community comes out because the pigs die. What were a group of Israelites doing having pigs? This is Israel. This is the region that was originally established by by Gad. For the nation of Israel, God was really clear that they were to not eat pork. They weren't to have herds of, of swine. So God's getting their attention here. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. Demons, Satan, they're always going to bring torment. They're always going to bring destruction. And that's seen really clearly in what they do with these pigs, convincing these pigs 
that it's time to kill themselves to run off of the cliff and drown into to the water. Even as believers, especially as believers, we don't need to be messing around in the demonic realm. There's nothing there for you. Satan doesn't have anything on Jesus. You think the power that is attractive in the, the demonic realm? Man, check out the power of Jesus Christ. You don't want to flirt with those things. You don't want to play around with those things. You don't want to open up your door of your life to that because it always ends in destruction. So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. They get news from those feeding the pigs what had taken place. Imagine if you owned the pigs. What's been affected? Your piggy bank. Your piggy bank has been affected. I've got a lot of other really lame pig jokes that have been in my head through this whole sermon, but I will spare you. That's something that gets our attention, doesn't it? Our finances. You mess with finances, you're going to get the attention of the community. Now here comes the owner of the pigs and people that had heard about this, and they come out to see what had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who'd been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They weren't afraid of this guy when he was demon-possessed. They were used to his craziness. Oh yeah, we chain him up every once in a while, and he's living in the tombs, he's doing his thing, crying out, cutting himself. But now that they see him in his right mind, totally set free, totally restored, sitting at the feet of Jesus, now they're freaked out. Now they're afraid. They don't want any part of this. Maybe you can relate, not that you've ever been demon-possessed, but before you knew Christ as your Savior, you had a pretty wild life. And you were known amongst your circle of friends to mix it up, to get everybody going down a sinful path. You were going to throw the party. And Jesus walked into your life, provided forgiveness, not perfect, but forgiven. And you're in church on a Sunday morning. And they're freaked out. They could handle you as the crazy, wild party animal, but they can't handle the fact that you're at church on a Sunday morning. Like, that's too much for me. I can't go there. And that's the exact response that happened with the demoniac. And those who saw it told them how it happened who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. They, they tell the story of what took place. Then they began to plead with him to depart from the region. This is heartbreaking. They don't care about the man that's been set free, and they don't want Jesus in their region. Would you, would you depart from us? Why do you think it is that they wanted Jesus out of the region? Because Jesus affected the economics in a negative direction. And the almighty dollar was more important than getting to know who Christ was. Bad choice. They had the opportunity to get to know Christ and experience true freedom that money can't provide. Jesus told us you can't serve God in money. You're going to have one master, and what is it going to be? And it's easy to pick on this group and to go, I can't believe that they asked Jesus to leave their region. But if Jesus affected your economics in a negative direction, would you be tempted to ask him to leave? If Jesus had a negative impact on the economy of the United States of America, what would America do? That's an easy one to answer, isn't it? So it's a lot more difficult question in our own lives to go, 
man, is God more important to me than money? Am I serving God or am I serving money? Jesus responds in verse 18, and he went into the boat. He's, he's leaving. He honors the request. Christ won't stay where he's not welcome. He who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. There's three requests that happen in this text. First from the demons, then from the community, now from this man who's been restored, and he has the honorable request. He says, I want to be with you, Jesus. You just changed my life. You've set me free. You've done something that nobody else can do. So I want to follow you. Christ's answer, verse 19. Excuse me. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. He's told no. Jesus says, I got a different plan. I want you to go home and be a witness. I want you to go to your family and friends and tell them what I've done in your life. It's difficult to handle no's from God sometimes, isn't it? And a lot of times they're honorable requests, saying, God, I would really like to do this. I, I would desire this. It's a godly thing. And sometimes God in his divine plan says, no, I, I got something a little different for you. I want you to go and do this. Christ, by asking the man to do this, shows unconditional love for the community, doesn't it? They're saying, we don't want you to be here, Jesus. Jesus says, okay, I'm going to beat you at your own game. Here comes the demoniac who's been restored, and he's going to tell everybody of of what I've done. Thankfully, God doesn't give up on us, huh? How many times in our lives did we try to push Christ out, and he kept showing us his love? He kept knocking upon the door of our hearts and our lives. Please consider this concept of declaring what God has done for you and the compassion that he's shown you. I like the way John Corson puts this in his commentary. He says, remember once again that we are called not to be defense lawyers, prosecuting attorneys, judges, or juries. We're called to be witnesses. Don't you like that? I don't got to be a lawyer. I don't got to be a judge. I don't got to be a jury. I just get to be a witness. I just get to tell people what God has done in my life, how he's forgiven me of my sins, how he's met me this week, all materials worthy of being shared, how you came to know Christ as your Savior, but also what God is doing currently, how he's comforting you, providing for you, meeting you. And we're a witness to that, the compassion that he's had upon our lives. I wonder what kind of effectiveness that we would have as the body of Christ as a whole corporately if we stopped being judges and lawyers and juries and we started being witnesses. That's what God calls us to all the time. And we get to share what he has done in and through our lives. And that's what's powerful. And that's what God uses and is difficult for people to refute. And he departed and began to proclaim it in Decapolis and all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. This man who experienced God's forgiveness, deliverance in his life had no ounce of training. 
never was able to come to a Wednesday night Bible study, go to school discipleship, have a mentor. Right away, Jesus says, I got a job for you to do. I want you to go. I want you to share what I've done in your life. And he accepts it. And he's obedient to it. And he doesn't just stop with family and friends, but he goes through the whole region. I think people probably knew of him in the region. This is what's challenging and convicting to me with this passage. It's in our community in Colorado Springs. There's some people that are hard to deal with. Sometimes you encounter somebody and they're crazy and they're out of control. And what do I do when I see them walking down the street? I'm like, I'm going to walk on the other side of the street. You know, you stay right on over there. But you know what? That's the very person that God wants to save and set free and will become the most effective missionary in our community. That's what happened right here. But it's sometimes it's hard to believe that God has the power to work in our lives to set us free and also has the power to save and deliver the craziest of Colorado Springs. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Like we're crossing this Sea of Galilee, going through this storm that I am going to silence, that I'm going to still, because there's a divine appointment waiting for this demoniac who's being tortured by the enemy. Jesus has the power in a moment to cast out these demons, and then this man goes and starts to share. You know what we need to be praying for? Doherty High School's right up the street. I imagine there's some wild kids at Doherty High School, don't you? There's probably some at Doherty High School that nobody thinks can get saved. Let's pray that they get saved and start walking the walls of Doherty High School and saying, you know what? This is what God has done in my life. Maybe there's that guy, there's that gal at your work that loves being antagonistic to Christ, that lives a crazy hedonistic life. He thought, man, you know what? When I see them in the break room, I go sit in the other side of the break room or I just leave. Start to begin to go, God, could you do a work in their hearts and their lives? Four applications from this text. Ministry is waiting after the storm. If you're going through a storm, be encouraged. There's going to be somebody on the other side of the storm and you're being equipped to be able to share with them. You can't conquer a spiritual problem in the physical realm. This man had a spiritual problem that could only be met through Christ. Jesus has the power and the desire to set people free. Do we believe that? If you know Christ is your Savior and there's an area of your life where you feel like you're in bondage, you can relate to these kinds of chains. Jesus died upon the cross and rose again to free us from the penalty of sin, but also from the power of sin, so that we don't have to be enslaved any longer. Just a moment, we're going to sing a worship song. I want to invite you as believers to come and receive prayer from somebody on the ministry team. Say, you know what? This is an area of my life where I'm enslaved. I want to see God do a work in and through my life. You may not know Christ as your Savior. And you go, you know what? I need to be set free. Jesus loves you. He died for your sins. He rose again. He wants to save you. There's power in what he has done for you. The creator of the universe, God's son, left the comforts of heaven 
lived a perfect life in human flesh, died, paid the price for your sin upon the cross, and rose again. And as we sing this last song, I want you to come. I want you to make the bold step from where you're at. If you're listening on the live stream, later on you're going to listen on the radio. Respond in faith, cry out to Jesus, Jesus, save my life. You thought your life was a mess until you read about this guy's life. If Jesus loves this man and can set this man free, he loves you and he can set you free, but you've got to respond. You've got to cry out in faith, turn in repentance, believe in who he is, that he's God. He died for you and rose again. Jesus, save me. That seems like a lot. That was a lot of words right there. Now, what do I do? You cry out to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're God. Save me. I believe in you. I receive your forgiveness. You cry that out to your heart. Surrender control of your life to him. Jesus will save you. And final application of this text is go and tell the great things that God has done in your life. Declare it to believers and unbelievers. Don't make it complicated. This is what God's done in my life. This is how he saved me. This is how he's being faithful to me in spite of myself. Let's stand and let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We're amazed by your power. Sometimes we get afraid when we read passages about the demonic realm and we look at the spiritual war that we're in. But Jesus, we see that you're victorious, that you have all power. Your power is displayed over the demonic realm. Father, I pray for those this morning that are wrestling with suicide. Jesus, would you minister to them? Would you speak life in the midst of that hopelessness? Would you give them the courage to cry out to you, to cry out to others? We pray for those that are cutting themselves, God, that you would meet them in that pain. You comfort their hearts, that you would do only what you can do. We pray for the youth of our community. We pray for all these suicides that have been taking place. Please comfort the junior hires and high schoolers that have lost classmates and friends. Would you help parents to be able to walk with their kids through that? Would you be with the teachers, the administrators? And Jesus, would you work? Would you work in these schools? Would you show your love? Jesus, would you introduce yourself to those students? God, we pray for those that are on the fringe of society, they're like this man. They're not living in normal places. They're not doing normal things. And they're difficult. But Jesus, you love them. You have a plan for them. We pray that they would come to know you, that they would be saved. So as we wait upon you, Holy Spirit, right now, we ask that you would speak. We pause for just a moment before we leave this morning. I want to meet you afresh in worship and to respond to what you're doing.